Well, I can certainly comment on the Tinder swindler, which I've seen and I have to say was screaming at the TV saying, no, please don't do that. Uh, It was very frustrating as a show. Very, very good. And obviously the story behind it is, you know, pretty horrific as to how this dating app has been manipulated in this way. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study Options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast Series. My name's Camilla and I'm an LPC student and future trainee solicitor. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Rita Gupta. Rita is a solicitor who focuses on family law, divorce and separation in the UK and abroad. She is co-founder and managing director of LGFL Limited, a boutique family law practice. She's ranked in Chambers and Partners and in the UK Legal 500. And she was also awarded Family Law Solicitor of the Year in the Lawyer Monthly Legal Awards 2017. In today's episode, I'm so excited to be discussing one of the most watched shows on Netflix from a legal perspective, which is The Tinder Swindler, and also looking at some of the issues raised in the show from a legal perspective. We'll also be touching on the Bad Vegan, which also has uh, some similar issues raised in the show. And we'll be discussing what life is like as a family lawyer. So make sure you stick around to the end of the episode to hear all of that good stuff. Now, without further ado, let's pass on over to Rita. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Rita. It's so great to have you here. Good morning, Camilla. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, So let's get straight into the questions. Please, could you provide us a a little bit of insight into your career to date? Absolutely. So um, I was brought up in Nottingham. So I studied there for my A-levels and then I did my undergraduate LLB at LSE. Um, I then, after that, went back home to Nottingham North School and did my LPC there. I then was looking for a training contract and I have to say that was a really difficult time. Um, I just remember printing out, I think, 300 CVs and covering letters to send out. It was just so difficult. I mean, it's always been challenging, but that was a particularly difficult uh, couple of years. So I initially got my first training contract at a high street firm, I won't mention, and it was, to be honest, quite awful. And uh, I left after a few weeks. 
And then I became a paralegal at IBB and the IBB solicitors, they're called IBB Law. And I applied internally for a training contract, which I was supposed to have about a year and a half gap. But then somebody pulled out and they brought me forward. So I I trained at IBB Law. I did um, a year in criminal law, six months in wills, tax and probate and six months in family law. And then I moved to a firm in Hampshire. And whereby I was there for about three, three and a half years, I did a relocation to Wiltshire and worked for a firm called Goffs. And then I got a call, I think December 2007, from my old boss from the Hampshire firm who said, we've always talked about it. Do you want to set up a law firm? And uh, after thinking she was joking, we actually did meet up and, and have a have a chat. And by June 2008, not timed in the heart of the recession, unfortunately, that did happen. Uh, we'd opened up six months later and uh, I haven't looked back since. <laughs> you know, LGFL has grown um, from strength to strength year on and we're coming up to 14 years. That's fantastic. Um, firstly, I completely relate to the struggle of getting a training contract with all of those applications and I'm sure that many of our listeners will as well Um, but I think that your story is really inspiring and I just love the fact that you have your own law firm Um, I think that's very aspirational so yeah such an interesting journey. I would tell people I mean one thing I would say is you know it's a bit cliche but don't give up you know there is going to be your CV or your application will land on someone's desk who will be just right for you um you do have to be persistent and resilient though this is not an area in a a career path which is easy we all know that but it is particularly challenging to get a training contract once you're qualified I think you know to actually recruit a, a solicitor is very challenging at the moment I'd say it's a it's a candidate's market once you're qualified, but it is a difficult period, and I totally empathise. And there were times when I was just thinking, you know what, maybe I should just do something else. But I'm glad I didn't. And I was really lucky to have my family who just kept encouraging me not to give up. I think it really helps when you hear other people's stories and when you have that um, encouragement as well. So, yeah, hopefully someone who's listening will definitely be inspired by that and will keep going. Um, So you mentioned that you uh, did criminal law and family law um, and uh, various other types when you were training. So what what drew you to family law um, and what do you enjoy most about your job as a family lawyer? Well, prior to sort of actually probably before I went to university and in the holidays, I'd always done some internships. So I'd worked with a family lawyer in Nottingham just on a voluntary basis. Um, I'd seen the client interview. She'd sent me to court to back counsel. I'd volunteered at a Nottingham Law Centre. So I'd had some really good insight into uh, family law. And it was always an area that I was interested in. And then I was a family law paralegal before I got my training contract in IBB Law. And what they had said is they thought because I'd done so much family law, I needed not to do more than six months in family law. So I made a really informed decision. And I absolutely loved my year in crime. I saw some amazing trials. Um, I had a fantastic principal who said, you'll never get an opportunity like this to, to see all these trials. So he'd let me go and back counsel. I was at the old Bailey on murder trials, et cetera. It's a really interesting area of law. But I think, you know, I I actually got married in the middle of that point and, you know, always did want a family and just 
personally felt that it was very difficult to juggle having a family and being a criminal lawyer and being called out at all hours of the day. And I think for family law, having had that, those internships really helped. I, I've always found it very fascinating. I'm a real people person and I'm very interested in psychology and people and their journeys and their stories. And I genuinely felt and still do feel that, you know, I have a role to play in helping people, um, you know, with the next stage of their life. People have been through difficult times and difficult journeys, but I, I see that the role of a good family lawyer as somebody who, you know, will put people people on the journey towards independence and a more positive life so I think just having those shades of grey is always really interesting for me I've never really been interested in non-contentious law I'll be honest with you I've always found that area quite boring um I like litigation I like the whole court aspect of cases uh, but primarily it's the people and their stories that interest me thank you for um going into that and could you explain what kind of cases you typically deal with? Absolutely. I mean, we deal with all aspects of family law and the practice only deals with family law. And actually, since I've qualified, that's all I've done. Um, and I think, you know, that is one point that, you know, laws really changed over the years. Most people are specialists in an area. You don't tend to dabble in lots of areas. And, and I don't think you would be the best lawyer if you did. So I think that, the, you know, on, from the marriage point of view, we deal with divorces, we deal with the issues that arise from that. So you'd have child arrangements, you know, uh, where the children will live, how much they'll see the other parent. And from that, um, you know, I deal with, tend to deal with quite complex issues where there has been perhaps, you know, parental alienation influences, issue of harm, um, and, and not always the, the level of harm that would lead to perhaps a care case, but the level of harm that would lead to emotional and psychological issues potentially um, in, in children and the parties. Um, stemming from that, we are a global world. And in recent years, I've dealt with quite a lot of relocation cases both international relocation cases where people, you know, have come here, worked, uh, met somebody, had a child with them, decided to go back home or a marriage is broken down and people want to go back to their family. So I've dealt with those cases and inter internal relocations when people say, well, you know what, our marriage is broken down. I want to go back up north. How does that impact a family? Finances, massive area uh, that I deal with, both from divorce and people who aren't married, you know, the financial settlements on an interim and long term basis. I deal with injunctions. I deal with cohabitation disputes, because remember, a huge proportion of the population aren't actually married, but are in established relationships with children and linked finances and I deal with um, post and prenuptial agreements so that's generally what I would deal with on a daily basis. That sounds like a really interesting mix of work and um, it sounds like you, you must have a very varied day as a family lawyer. Yeah absolutely no day is the same because as I've, as I've just explained, there's so many different types of family law. Um, and I think in addition to that, each client is so different, their story is so different, the issues are so different. So it is very varied. And that's probably one of the most interesting aspects of it. It's kept me engaged in it for 20 plus years anyway. That's You're always learning. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I love that when you just, there's always something new to learn. It definitely keeps you on your toes. And like you said, you just wouldn't get bored. 
Stephanie, what is one of the biggest challenges that you face when writing law essays at university? Well, Camilla, it takes such a long time to gain a deep understanding of the area of law I'm focusing on and to work out what the key arguments are in order to critically analyse the topic. It often involves spending countless hours reading lots of books. I just wish there was a simpler way. It's funny you say that because our awesome sponsor, Bloomsbury Publishing, has a book series called Great Debates in Law, which explores the key debates and controversies in different areas of the law, all written by experts in their field. That sounds perfect. Where can I find out more about this book series? Head over to bloomsbury.com and for a limited time only, they are offering listeners of the podcast 20% off any book in the series by using the code GREATDEBATES20 and you can find the details in the description box of the podcast. Um, so for our listeners who are thinking about a career in family law, what do you think are the most important skills to develop and to demonstrate to future employers, whether that be on the applications or in interviews? OK, well, I'm a great believer in internships and work experience. And I know it's quite easy to say that, you know, that and it's not as easy to always to obtain. But I think even if it's done on a voluntary, unpaid basis, I think that really puts you in good stead because to go to an interview and say, I really want to do that area and actually have no experience of it just opens you up to being questioned. And I certainly would say, well, what's that based on? So and I think it gives you good exposure to actually that area of law, which may look very interesting, but there may be something in practice that you really don't like about it. So I think doing some work experience and and actually getting some exposure around it uh, would be very important. I think you have to be to be a good family lawyer. I'm not saying every family lawyer is a people person, but to be a good family lawyer, you need to be good with people. And that means you have to be able to strike that balance between empathy and being human to being very professional and keeping that distance. And that's something you learn with experience because you're not their friend and counsellor at the same time. This isn't a business transaction. You are dealing with aspects of people's lives, their children, their home, how much money they will have at the end of the month. You know, it's really um, important that you recognise that, you know, the role that you play in it. So I think people skills are very important to be able to communicate very complex information because family law is not just family law. It can incorporate information about properties. It can uh, incorporate wills advice. It can incorporate elements of tax. To be able to communicate that to somebody who is going through perhaps the most difficult period of time in their life is highly emotional, you know, takes good people skills. Um, I think you've got to be the kind of person who can deal with pressure because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not it's not non-contentious law, is it? So, you know, there will be court hearings. Timeframes are often very urgent. Um, you know, clients' expectations, well, over the years that I've done this job have just increased and increased. I call it the Amazon effect where people click a button and want it to be done. And, you know, COVID's made that worse even and, and the onset of email in our in our role. So you've got to be able to chop and change between cases and, and aspects and you've got to be able to deal with the pressure of that uh, and, and set very clear boundaries. I think that you've got to be a resilient person because as much as you say that you need to have that professional distance, you are human and you there are aspects of that case, of cases, sorry, that you will absorb. 
And to be able to manage that your own well-being and remain professional and do good job, you have to have resilience and be able to set boundaries. Uh, and I think it's just a good overall knowledge uh, of areas of law. Now, you're not going to specialist tax advice, but you've got to be able to pick out where the client would need specific advice. So I think you've got to be, they would probably be my my top skills that I would I would suggest would make a good family lawyer. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And do you have any other tips for aspiring family lawyers? I'd say, let's say, I've talked about work experience and internships and and read around the subject. Um, You know, do you actually understand what family law incorporates? You know, it's not, we talk about the split, which I have to say I was a fan of and really liked, but, you know, that's a a London firm and it's dramatised and it's very glamorous. And, you know, your bog standard family lawyer isn't going to be dealing with cases like the split. Um, But, you know, really just... You've got to you've got to be exposed to it. You know, you've got to be able to. I always have people who are on internships and work experience read clients' uh, files, see how they can deal with the content. Some of the content's actually very distressing, um, and you've got to be able to deal with that and run their case. You may you can't have moral views that you impose on your client. Uh, in respect of that, you know, we've got clients who've committed adultery or may have acted in a way that you would not condone, but you still have to remain professional and do the best that you can for them. So I think you have to look at whether your personality suits family law. Um, you're not a backroom lawyer as a family lawyer. You are really um, engaged with the client in the case. That's a really good point, actually. Um, it, you know, with family law, there is that extra element of their personal lives which you have to kind of get involved in but obviously keep that professional distance that must be quite challenging um for maybe some people so yeah I I think that's a that's a great um piece of insight and when we were emailing to set up this podcast you mentioned that the no fault divorce law is um has just come into force could you explain what the impact of this new law is Absolutely. Well, I spent a lot of time on No Fault Divorce Day, as we call it, um, done radio interviews and a couple of CV interviews. So I, it was really interesting because family lawyers and particularly Resolution, who's the family law organisation that sort of promotes that cases are dealt with in a, in a non-confrontational way and legally proportionate on fees. And we're all saying this is the best thing since light bread. And, you know, it's, this is amazing. And I I really looked at it from the client's perspective. So basically, the divorce laws changed after about 50 years. So rather than being able to, you know, there's one ground for divorce, which is irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. But then you had to rely on one of five facts, probably two of the most common being adultery or unreasonable behaviour. What no fault divorce did was remove all those essential uh, facts so that you only have to make a statement that the marriage is irretrievably broken down. And the idea behind the thinking was to make divorce a less acrimonious process and to set the tone correctly from the outset. Because what you're not, you know, you've got to understand that people have children together and, you know, it was thought that 
saying X, Y, and Z about the private details of their relationships. Let's look at the Depp Heard trial. Um, from the outset, it just didn't set the tone right. And actually, society's views on, on divorce have changed. There isn't really the stigma that was attached to divorce. I would say to my clients when they worry about the impact on the children, if you, you asked how many children in the classroom are from separated families it's probably about the you know quite a significant number so the divorce laws weren't just in keeping with the times so the idea was to remove that acrimony it's also changed things like ability to defend divorce which is important if you're looking at those coercively controlling relationships when people can use the legal process to continue with that abuse and delay matters increased costs, etc. So you can't actually defend now unless it's on specific jurisdictional grounds. Um, and then there's rules as to the time frames. You know, there's a minimum sort of 20-week period, which is supposed to build in reflection time. So it's changed the process and it's designed to make it more straightforward and positive on the basis that you're not assigning blame. But when I was going through the whole process, you know, what I did understand was that the human side of that is it's fine as as family lawyers saying this is the best thing ever, but actually for a client who's felt aggrieved, perhaps has been a victim of abuse, whose spouse has been unfaithful, it was a tough pill for them to swallow that they can't actually tell their story at any point. And it's interesting. I think that's probably why I got the media interviews. I did have actually another angle to it. And I do as a person empathise that that's very difficult for people to accept. And and around the media interviews, there was a huge, the huge concern of the journalists was that this was going to encourage people to go out and get divorced because it was so easy. But actually, I don't think that's the case, despite a a short uh, spike for people who are waiting for the change, because the issues around the children and the finances have, you know, that that process hasn't been changed. So that actually, by its very nature, can be still quite acrimonious. So I think it's a start, but it hasn't made, you know, divorce a, a pleasant process. And you've got to understand that when human emotions are part of this process, you're never always going to have a divorce without acrimony or a separation without acrimony. So it's a start towards changing the law, but there's a long way to go. Yeah, that sounds like a really positive change for many. But like you said, there is that other side, which I hadn't thought about. And so I think that's a really interesting perspective. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. We're now going to move on to talk about economic abuse um, and 
the Tinder Swindler um, Netflix series and Bad Vegan. Um, you know, Tinder Swindler has been a very popular show. Um, and for those who haven't haven't had the chance to see it, essentially it's um, a show which tells a story about um, a man named Simon Levive, Lviv, I can't remember how to pronounce that now, um, who reportedly enticed women into a relationship with him. And then he manipulated them into taking out loans to give him huge amounts of money, which he spent on maintaining his lavish lifestyle. And Bad Vegan, um, which is uh, quite similar in, in the sense that a husband drains his wife's personal and business finances to the sum of 1.6 million dollars um, through a series of lies threats and false promises including quite bizarre promises to make her dog immortal um, which is very strange um, but yeah he also managed to get hold of her passwords for her bank accounts and her email accounts um, so yeah I really wanted to speak to you about this these two shows and to find out whether this type of behavior is recognized in family law and if so and um, perhaps you could provide some insight into how the law actually views this type of mm. behavior well I can certainly comment on the tinder swindler which I've seen and I have to say was screaming at the tv saying no please don't do that uh it was very frustrating as a show very very good and obviously the story behind it is you know pretty horrific as to how this dating app has been manipulated in this way and I think uh, you know obviously that's quite an extreme case Uh, that wouldn't be the bog standard case that we as family lawyers would deal with however the issues that it raises you know we deal with on a daily basis so when I first dealt with this job I think you know was the focus on abuse was primarily on actual physical harm and you know can you prove it have you been to the gp uh have you got a a, did you go to the hospital have you got bruises have you got photos and you know what we've what's emerged over time is that you know abuse is not just something that you can physically see on a person abuse is so much more far-reaching and i think you know the actual coercively controlling element, more subtle forms of abuse, which would involve like psychological abuse, you know, verbal abuse, patterns of behaviour, which completely disempower the victim. Um, And I don't know whether you know what gaslighting is, Camilla, but it's something I always tell my clients to go to go and read uh, up about. Uh, And economic abuse are things that, you know, had to be recognised. So in criminal law there, under the Serious Crime Act 2015, um, it is, um, you know, coercively controlling behaviour, which includes uh, economic abuse in intimate relations, um, is a criminal offence. But the Domestic Abuse Act 2021 did bring in um, financial abuse as part of, you know, recognised as an, an area of abuse that people have to be aware of. I mean, linking it to the Tinder swindler, one of the things that I always am concerned about is things like passwords and access, digital uh, online access. I always speak to our clients about this. From the outset, when they instruct us, I ask them, uh, our assistant will ask them, like, who else has access to your computer? Has your password been changed um, recently? Uh, do you want to set up a new email address, etc.? So we do 
put that, you know, right at the outset of it. Unfortunately, we have had cases where, you know, if you're in a long-standing relationship, people sometimes know your passwords where they have gone on and accessed my advice despite me warning them about this. Um, and then there's some clients who I've got in these coercively controlling relationships who want to get out, they set up a completely new email address so that there's no, just for me, so that there's no way that their partner could get um, hold of those details. I think what was really concerning about the Tinder swindler is the speed at which he managed to manipulate his, his victims um, in, you know, the, the love bombing, I would call it, in making them feel like they were so special and presenting a different way. And then it emerging that actually, you know, he had no money and asked for money and, and it kept going on and on and on and on. And the influence of the victim of, you know, the power that he held over um, the victims in, in obtaining more and more money, taking out loans. That's a point we have seen where people are encouraged to take out loans, borrow funds, uh, and, and the way in which they go between accounts is, is often quite pivotal. So I think we do see this regularly. I think more often in a family law case, I would say it would be one person having a lot more financial control. Now, this particularly could happen perhaps even more in the Asian community often because of the way properties are held. Properties are often held in one person's name, more likely the husband, but I'm not making any gender comments about abuse. It can happen to men or women. And or sometimes in extended family names where people can say, well, the house doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my mother or my father. And we often have those sort of issues arise um, and completely controlling the situation whereby somebody doesn't have a lack of somebody doesn't have an insight or transparency into the party's finances and what happens in a relationship and this happened obviously in the tinder swindler is you know she believed or they believe they're in a loving relationship so you trust it and you don't you trust the other person you don't cross check every transaction or or question everything on a daily basis and we often find that we are dealing with cases where people have allowed just over time it's emerged that one person has had financial control. So they've had no insight into it. They've not known what assets they have. They've not known what their spouse earns. They've not known what they've got. And what's happened is that they've been misled into either thinking that, you know, there aren't assets when there are or that there is a lot more than there actually emerges to be and that they're in a much more vulnerable financial position than there has been, than they thought that they were in. And the other aspect is that gradual, you know, coercive controlling behaviour is a pattern of behaviour of disempowering people, um, of, you know, or, or gaslighting them to the point where well, if you've got the children or you've got the home, you don't need to work. So we've had a lot of cases where people have been encouraged to give up their careers and not to work. So they are then completely dependent on the other person with regards to uh, an income. And they've, you know, they've got that big career gap when they're coming to us often, they haven't worked for 10, 15 years, find themselves in a position whereby they're restarting again. So, you know, and, and we've had similar cases where people have transferred properties and assets out during the process to defeat the matrimonial claims. So, you know, there's a lot of areas in family law where you where we've seen this economic abuse, whereby, which is why it's recognised. Obviously, the Tinder Swiddler is a more, you know, perhaps more glamorous area of where it's presented, but certainly the issues that are there and the misrepresentation is something that we do see in cases.
So bearing that in mind, do you think there are any key warning signs to look out for so that we can all recognise this behaviour early and try our best to avoid it? Uh, I mean, I wish I had the magic answer to that, but that probably I don't have one answer. I mean, one of the things I would say, and I often say this to clients who can end, exit these abusive relationships and very quickly form other relationships. And at that point, I would say, give them certain areas of advice. I mean, Generally, I would was concerned when watching the Tinder Swindler at the at the speed at which the first victim, um, you know, was was going abroad with him and was going on holiday with him and looking for apartments for him. So I think erring on the side of caution generally uh, would be uh, sensible, particularly if you're meeting somebody on an app like that from your safety. I mean, there was a scene when her friends were texting her um, saying that they were worried about her. Um, etc. And I think, you know, always making sure that someone knows where you are, etc. If you're meeting somebody from an app. I think that keeping finances separate from the, uh, you know, until the relationship is more serious is a sensible thing to do. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, who pays for dinner or whatever, but taking loans out. Somebody asked you to take a loan out, take a credit card out for them or whatever, without being in a very committed, serious relationship. And even then you shouldn't be doing it anyway because it was misrepresentation and arguably fraud on her part. You you would completely have warning signs in that regard. So I think, you know, anything whereby somebody is elusive or is asking you very personal information, asking you to access your accounts, your financial power should send huge warning signs to you. I think that's brilliant advice um, and hopefully, yeah, the listeners can um, and we can all look out for those signs and try and avoid something similar happening again. And, and what do you think can be done legally to protect the victims from further abuse and manipulation? I mean, obviously, you would go to the police, first of all, with the extent if you, I mean, taking Tinder Swindler apart. But if there was if you were a victim of anything like that and you weren't married I would and if you were married you would go and report it to the police I have dealt with cases whereby the police have had uh, have investigated the matter remember obviously this criminal burden of proof is higher than the civil burden of proof so unfortunately in the two that I had the police didn't continue with the investigation uh it wasn't uh, uh you know the other person was uh released without charge so I think you you would have to look at reporting it to the police um from our perspective, if we had a client in this circumstance, we would be looking at getting a non-molestation injunction for them, potentially if they were living together, getting the other person out on an occupation order, and then starts the process of disentangling their finances, which isn't as easy as a, as, as we, one would think, uh, obviously. Now, if you are not married, the financial protection that you receive from the law is not as great as if you were married. Essentially, your your financial legal claims arise from what you own in contract. So if you own a house together, um, then, you know, the, the claims would arise from that. But if you've taken out, you know, there's no right to, for example, maintenance, uh, et cetera, of, uh, other than for children. And, you know, if you've taken out loans X, Y and Z, that's going to be difficult. I mean, I'm not a civil lawyer, but I think it would be some real concerns about how you would obtain that money back. I mean, I would hope that credit card companies, et cetera, there may be something from the fraud aspect that you would be able to recover. And I didn't, they didn't deal with that in Tinder Swindler, did it really, about what she 
you know, what, if any relief did she get from any of the companies? It was just like, yes, I'm still paying it back. I think that if you're married, obviously it's very different in that everything goes into the pot, whoever's name it is in. And those debts, you would be asking for them to be accounted for uh, as part of any matrimonial settlement because it doesn't matter. Because often in a marriage, people will say, oh, you know what, you take that uh, loan out for the kitchen or, you know what, can you put that holiday on your credit card? So whilst technically uh, that debt is in that person's name because the credit card or loan is in their name, it would be factored into the mix of a marriage and when you're looking at dividing the assets. I mean, if we're talking about lots of money, you know, we can have freezing injunctions whereby straight away, you know, you would you would have it's quite a draconian order. So you'd have to have very good grounds to go and get a section 37 freezing order to freeze the assets of the other party so that there couldn't be any more um. Uh, you know, a dissipation of assets, you could be looking at, um, you know, maintenance applications to get money uh, on a, on a short term basis um, to pay off any of these aspects. Um, but it would be factored in much more if you were, you were married. That being said, I always say to clients, because, you know, there's something called the add back argument, which is, you know, say, for example, somebody spent quarter of a million pounds of the assets on you know they've dissipated it on parties or you know buying champagne for everyone like in the tinder swindler you know there are add back arguments you can you can raise but in essence we have to have a practical head with that because if the money's gone to an extent it's gone so i think the focus has to be on it not 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 being in that position in the first place because there are recovery processes but the chances of getting everything pound for pound added back in are very slim yeah i think uh, well it's been fascinating learning about the you know the issues in the tinder swindler from a, a family law perspective um you know like you said once the money is gone the money's gone um it must be very difficult to get it back. And from my own limited experience working at the financial ombudsman service, um, you know, we've had complaints brought to us where people have transferred money to companies or people or, well, scammers, basically, um, you know, doing an online bank transfer. Yeah. And there's absolutely nothing that, generally, there's absolutely nothing that can be done once the money has been transferred like that. So, yeah. yeah, it's... And if it's spent, it's spent, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if somebody's spending that ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, remember, there's a financial disclosure process when they're married. I mean, as I say, I'm not a civil lawyer, so I wouldn't be able to go into those aspects of it. I mean, you could have a, a, a Talata claim under the Trust of... Um, uh, trust of oh, land and appointment of trustees at you could get look at the uh, the relief that you could get from there obviously if there's children there are there's financial relief you can obtain there but just looking at this practically if that amount of money has gone you've got to get it back from somewhere haven't you it's got to be enough to compensate somebody else and then in a vast amount of cases it's a needs argument in which case you know you couldn't take everything away from another party who'd perhaps dissipate it and then them not be able to rehouse, for example. So it's it's complex. Um, but I think this is back to the discussion about if somebody is asking you to take out loans and credit cards, et cetera, in their name, in in circumstances which are questionable, then you do need to question it and, and not go down that, that route. Definitely. And so what if someone has access to your account? 
That's that's fraud, isn't it? That is fraud. We have had that on a case whereby there was a dispute as to whether who had made the transfer um, and who had gone in. Because often what happens is if you're married and or in any committed relationship, you do have access to people's passwords, which is why, as I say, the first question we ask is who else has access to this email account? Who has access to you know your accounts, etc.? Do you need to go and change passwords? I think from that perspective, again, if they're married, we'd be factoring it in to the general settlement, but I think you'd be needing to go to the bank immediately on that because it is not legal that you can go into somebody else's account and do transfers. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. A very good point. And I, I actually always say to clients when they sometimes say, oh, but I've got access. I'm like, no, don't do that. It's not for you to do. Um, so I think one of the early advice that we give people is the interim advice is, you know, what credit cards have you got together? Because say, for example, somebody's a nominated user, they can go and spend a lot of money on a credit card, can't they? Uh, and it's technically in your name. So, you know, we talk about these areas in sort of very early meetings so that people can address a, a, a interim protection. That sounds like a very good idea to, yeah, stop it from happening in the first place. Um, so the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial has is going on at the moment as we're recording this podcast and it has had a lot of media attention. Um, I wondered if you've been following this trial and whether you had any observations about that case or any opinions. I've looked at um I've looked at snippets of it. I have to say I find it very personally distasteful on the basis of you know uh, issues from a marriage being put on a public platform in this way uh, and it has turned into a media circus in fact I was asked to potentially do a media interview it and I declined it because I think it's polarized people so much you know you're either team uh you know team herd and men are domestic or, or um you know, perpetrators are men or you're uh, a male um, victim or supporter and you're thinking that actually lots of women lie about domestic abuse. And I, all I can say is that it's very unfortunate that such private issues and intimate issues, very intimate issues of arising from a marriage have been put to the in the public arena in this way. And I just personally can't see any of them being the winner in this case you know I think there can be a, a judgment made you know obviously it's a defamation trial it's not a family law trial but it's arising from the marriage I don't see how any of them are going to personally come off better than the other in this I mean it must be very difficult for the jurors to assess any evidence when you've got um, or the judge to assess any evidence when you've got two actors in there. You know, if you look at witness credibility when you've got a trial, very, a lot of that is on how the witness comes across, etc. I mean, there's been some very dramatic moments of it all. And it's just seems, I think it's awful. I really do, I must say. Uh, and it's the way it's polarised people's views on abuse. It's raised some issues as well in that it's raised the point that, you know, all victims of abuse, whether it's economic, financial, because what we haven't talked about is, well, what about the situation whereby you have a, a husband or a man working um, and the wife's decided to give up her career, be maybe a coffee morning mom or a part-time mom, 
and is spent lots and lots of money is not looking to go back to work and contribute to the finances. So it's arguably is that economic abuse? Well, some of my male clients probably would say that when they are incredibly stressed making, you know, ends meet on one salary. So, you know, I think what the debt her trial positively has come about about it is talking about the victims of abuse can be anybody. They can be men, they can be female, they can be people who have money and who from the outside look as though that they have these perfect celebrity lives. So I think from that perspective, it's positive, but I just can't see any winners in it. And I just find it all very personally distasteful um, in respect of things. I'm not team herd or team um, depth. Yeah, I completely agree. I've had some people ask me like, whose side are you on? And I, I have the same opinion. I'm not on either side. I think that firstly, it's hard to know actually what happened. And secondly, it, it just seems like it was perhaps a marriage where it just didn't work and now things are being played out um, and, you know, the details are being um, displayed to public arena and there obviously was abuse happening um, in, in some way. I mean, I haven't watched enough of it to be able to comment either way on it, but, yeah, it just seems like it's just a media circus. And yeah. It's such a toxic, clearly a very yeah, toxic relationship, a toxic. which is just horrible to to follow. But if you look at Twitter and some of the comments, whether you're, you know, on her side or Depp's side, are pretty vile. But I think what I wouldn't want to happen and the concern about this is if, you know, if Depp was successful, seeing, you know, the majority of women lie about domestic abuse claims or if heard successful, well, see, all men are perpetrators. I just... That's what I'd, I I would be most concerned about. Yeah, I think social media is very dangerous in, in that respect. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there are people who are watching every line and maybe taking it out of context. But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, considering the delays, I know this isn't in this jurisdiction, but I was, you know, I read something on Twitter yesterday. I think it was from somebody for the Lord Society. And it was in my mind as well. It was about the Wagatha Christie trial. And I was like, oh, my God, here's me waiting for months for a hearing. And then there's two two wags in court about who said what. And you think oh. <laughs> it's not use of a just perhaps the best use of the justice system at this moment in time. So, um, yeah, you just think about how much court time and money is being spent on these trials. It's just pretty ridiculous, really. Definitely. Well, that it's been absolutely fascinating to learn about the Tinder Swindler and Bad Vegan from a family law perspective. When I was watching it, I just thought, you know, well, it was fascinating, but I was really interested in, in it from more of a legal perspective. So I'm really happy that we've managed to have this conversation today um, and hopefully we can all let, take something away from it as well um, so thank you so much Rita for coming on the show it's been amazing to have you on here thank you so much Camilla thank you and just one final question where can listeners follow you okay well I'm quite active on social media so you can link in with me um, and I've got a personal account, Rita Gupta, and then there's my company account, LGFL Limited. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wonderful. Oh, and a YouTube channel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a YouTube channel, which has got some videos uh, on various areas of family law, which may be of interest. Great. I'll leave links to those in the description box of the podcast so that the listeners can find them easily. 
so yeah thank you so much again for coming on the show and thank you to all of the listeners for tuning in um, please do leave us a comment and a review if you enjoyed this episode um, please let us know you know what you found most interesting um, and yeah we'll see you next time goodbye To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.